Hi, this is John, creator of Tale of the Manticore. In addition to my usual disclaimer, I'd like to make an extra warning. This episode contains material that is somewhat more intense. Therefore, in order to avoid listening to such material for those who prefer not to hear it, when you get to the 23 minute mark and you hear this music, that's when you know you should stop listening. It's the final section of the episode, and you can catch up on the details of the plot in the last time section of the next episode. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter of Tale of the Manticore begins with the iron-skinned dwarves still in pursuit of the party. Anatar comes to grips with the changes that are occurring in him and his men. They've lost the need for sleep, food, or even water. More disturbing, their very shadows have begun to flicker in and out of existence. Anatar stands atop a boulder with Hayward, looking into the distance and planning their next move, when the group suddenly comes under attack from an unseen assailant. Hayward is felled by an enemy arrow, and before Anatar can gather his thoughts, a second arrow comes flying his way. This shot that should have killed the dwarf instead passes harmlessly through him, as if it, or he, was no more substantial than the air. As for the main characters, a massive thunderstorm halts their progress and forces them to take shelter. As hunger erodes their morale, Geros and Umora exchange some intellectual jabs until Ursuleth restores peace by offering a traditional dwarven song. Her singing is successful in raising spirits, a little too successful. It draws Anatar and the other iron-skinned dwarves right to the party's location. The dwarves, it is soon discovered, are no longer just dwarves. They've become demi-shadows. These accursed creatures flicker in between the realm of shadow and the prime material plane, giving them a huge advantage in a fight. Essentially, the demi-shadows can attack every round, but since the party lacks magical weapons, they can only be harmed every other round. The last episode ended in the middle of the fight. Sorry about that. So that's where we begin our story today. Entering Combat Round 4. Initiative. The Demi Shadows. A 6. The Party. A 4. There are two Demi Shadows remaining. The Demi Shadow facing Gyrios gropes at him with its wraith like hand. Gyrios' protection spell has a duration of over an hour, so it is still very much in effect. 
The demi shatter will need a 17. A 10. It is missed. The other dwarf, now corporeal, swings his mace at Umura. She also still has a protective spell in effect. It will need to roll a 17 or better. A 1. Critical fail. Umura's shield spell springs up and deflects the blow, leaving the dwarf's mace arm numb. Now it's the party's turn. Eridine and Gyrios find themselves facing the same demi-shadow. It flickers into shadow form and simply allows them to swing and stab away uselessly. It knows nothing can harm it. <laughs> Harl moves to help Umura, and he is close enough to get in and attack. His roll? A 16 hits. Wow, I don't think Harl has ever had a bad damage roll. The 7, plus his strength bonus, is 8 points. Harl has come up behind the dwarf and buried his axe in the back of its skull, splitting the dwarf's helmet like a piece of firewood. <laughs> Round 5. Initiative. The sole remaining demi-shadow. A 4. The party. A 2. This demi-shadow is in dwarf form this round. It takes in Eridine's lack of armor and judges her the easiest target. He tries an overhead swing with his warhammer at her. He needs to get a 14 or better to hit. A 13. Eridine deftly steps to the side as the warhammer whistles past. <gasps> she counterattacks. Another one! The dwarf is a skilled fighter and manages to trip her as she moves into strike. Eridine falls to the ground and her sword clatters away along the rocks. She'll need to spend the next round retrieving it. <laughs> Gyrios whips the ball of his flail across in a straight line, aiming for the dwarf's head. A six. The dwarf ducks under it easily. <gasps> Umura has had enough of close fighting. She backs away and moves to protect Ursulith, who is curled up in a ball on the ground, whimpering in fear. Harl has a chance to end this right now. He swings away. A 10 is not enough. <gasps> round 6. There's no need to roll for initiative this round, as it is essentially a free attack for the demi-shadow who flickers once again into shadow form and reaches for Eridine. A 12. Another miss. Harl and Gyrios try their counterattacks, but they just pass right through the creature. <gasps> Round 7. Initiative. The Demi-Shadow. A 1. The Party. A 4. Eridine is first, waiting for the thing to retake corporeal form before slashing with her recovered sword. A 10. Misses. Gyrios and Harl too have learned the creature's pattern. Gyrios tries to time his swing. A 12 is a miss, and his flail connects with nothing. <gasps> Harl tries as well. A 4. The demi-shadow now targets Harl. A 16 is a hit. The warhammer connects with Harl's shoulder for... Only two points. A glancing blow. <coughs> in round 8, the demi-shadow will take another free attack on Harl, this time in shadow form. A 6 is a miss. Round 9. Initiative. The demi-shadow. A 3. The party. 1. The demi-shadow, back in corporeal form, takes a third swing at Harl. A 13 does not succeed. Harl strikes back. An 8, yet another miss. Gyrios. A 9, also no good. Eridine. A 14, that just makes it. She slips in her blade and feels it bite into flesh. Six points of damage. When she pulls back her blade, it is wet with blood. The demi-shadow spasms and falls over, dead. Yet another combat that went completely against expectations. This also happens to be the longest combat in Tale of the Manticore history to date. One for the record books. Chapter 30, Part 1. Day 32, Mid-Afternoon. Elevation, 
2,500 feet above sea level. Party status. Harl, 15 of 16 hit points, having lost two hit points the day before and naturally healed for one since. Eridine, 12 out of 12 hit points. Gyrios, 21 of 21 hit points. Umura, 13 of 13 hit points. Ursulith, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Light, and Levitate. Gyrios has prayed for Purify Food and Water, and Cure Light Wounds. Eridine started towards the corpses, but Gyrios caught her by the shoulder and held her back. He knew what she wanted. The dwarves might have been carrying food, or water. But he saw what she didn't, or didn't want to. No, child. You must not touch them. The dwarves flickered a few more times after they died, and then resumed their corporeal form, turned to charcoal gray from head to toe, and began to fade. Like a drop of ink in a cup of water, they each dissolved into nothingness, and soon were gone, along with everything they wore and carried. They were cursed, Eridine. Outside their shelter, the storm continued to rage, uninterested in the return to calm within. There was nothing to do but wait for it to end. Arl spent the rest of the day worrying. Had all the occupants of the High Forge suffered the same curse? What had become of his family? What had become of Thurn, Valiador, Cleneth, and the rest? He wanted so badly to turn back, but knew he could not. He would not break this promise for anything. After twenty minutes, Umura's spell winked out and was gone. An hour later, Gyrios's shoulders slumped as his protective blessing wore off. The day passed slowly, and the storm eventually moved on to harass some other part of Merith, taking its clouds with it and pulling back a curtain from the rich, black, moonless night sky with stars that twinkled like so many little jewels. They set their watch duties as usual, and took whatever sleep they could get. At dawn, they awoke to a most curious sight. Hanging from a tree branch just outside their shelter was a long, thin, deerskin bag. Three white feathers had been tied to the drawstring. They fluttered in the light breeze. How in Mazagar's name did that get there? asked Gyrios to nobody in particular. Did anyone fall asleep during their shift? Umura wanted to know. Nobody said that they had, so Umura shrugged and went to collect the bag. She was opening it as she returned to them. She showed the contents as she withdrew them, one by one. Six expertly made, white-fletched arrows. A small packet of dried fish, each no bigger than a pinky finger. A whetstone. A spool of strong thread with both a needle and a fish hook, and a small amber figurine shaped as an owl. It was exquisite, and small enough to fit in the palm of Umura's hand. There was a small handwritten note wrapped around it. It read, Strangers have destroyed the evil things that strangers have brought to our lands. Elven folk wish to thank the strangers. Use this to know friend from foe. Be ever free as the wind. Sindur. There was a postscript that read, Strangers are asked to leave. I've rolled for weather, stumble upon, and wandering encounters off mic. The rolls indicate mildly unpleasant weather, gray skies, the occasional drizzle, and nothing else of note. The party breaks its fast on the dried fish gifted to them by Sindur, and the rainwater Gyrios has collected in his helmet. Determining direction is easy. It's simply a matter of keeping the Kazmirioth to their left. Eridine spends part of the day's trek admiring her new elven arrows. Gyrios is very interested in the amber figurine. He can sense the magic within it. There's a rune carved into the bottom of the little amber owl. 
Curious can read it and knows exactly what this item can do. To date, this is the party's third magical item. In addition to the Potion of Invisibility and Bracers of Defense, AC6, both of which are carried by Eridine, the party now has an Owl of Thresendia. It has the power to cast the first level clerical spell, Detect Evil, once per day. Here's how the spell works. Once cast, by holding the figurine in the hand and by speaking the command word, the spell will last for one hour. The figurine will become warm in the hand if any being of evil intent is within its 120-foot range. It's worth mentioning that the magic is limited and that it can only reveal evil intent. It cannot read minds. It also cannot be used on objects, such as traps, with the possible exception of some cursed items or the like. December 1933. You'd expect Chicago to be cold, but not this year. It's hotter than a kiss between Harlow and Flynn, and just as thrilling. Trouble's blowing in the Windy City. Capone might be in the big house, but even a half-wit knows full well Al didn't leave the picture. But that's not stopping his lieutenants from squabbling over the scraps, and it sure as hell ain't stopping the other gangs from trying to knock Capone's outfit down a few pegs. Any palooks with some Tommies and attitudes are grabbing at that pie like a fat kid at Thanksgiving. But there's something brewing in Chicago's shadows. And it's not that next batch of bathtub gin. No, this is something that bites a lot harder and leaves a mark that won't heal anytime soon. My name's E.I. Wick, and I want to tell you about four palooks just trying to beat the breadlines and survive the day-to-day. But life's got other plans for this Private Jane and her three friends. To hear their story, then slide your feet to the dark side of the street and visit gunforhireap.com. That's gun with two ends. Gun for Hire. A Deadlands Noir actual play from Fear the Boot. In the morning, the foothills were like a wonderland. The storm from the previous day had cooled the ground, and today heavy mists floated over it, settling between the foothills so that the party appeared to be traveling through a ghostly ocean whose surface was broken by hilltop islands. By afternoon, the mists had dissipated, and the party advanced through a landscape of dreary gray. Occasionally, invisible clouds would release their contents over the travelers' heads in a drizzle. Although the dwarves were consumed with worry over the fate of their kin, there was a comfort in knowing that they were no longer being pursued. At last, the constant feeling of being stalked was gone. Around mid-afternoon, the sound of the river Sindur had mentioned became audible and they felt encouraged even further. Doubling their pace, they soon reached the banks of a wide and shallow fjord. The water babbled along lazily from its far-off origins in the Kazmirioth and snaked its way slowly toward the southern sea. Upon seeing it, Umura laughed with delight and rushed to the edge. Within moments, she, Eridine, and Gyrios were stripping off their filthy clothes. Umura had undressed to the waist before she noticed Harl and Ursuleth's looks of discomfort. The two dwarves did not seem to share their enthusiasm for a communal bath. Umura quickly understood and covered herself. Come, come, let's do this properly. Girls bathe upriver, men stay here. This seemed to do the trick. Ursuleth allowed herself to be escorted away and out of sight where the women could bathe alone. They spent a happy hour laughing and swimming in the cool shallows. Their clothing was still damp when they once again dressed, but the air was warm and they were not uncomfortable. Considering how they had spent several recent days, cold, 
wet, and with rain constantly pouring over them, this felt like a luxury. As good as the river bath was, spirits rose even higher when the women rejoined Harl and Gyrios and learned that the two men had captured a quartet of brown shell turtles and two dozen snails. Ursuleth, come see what we've found here. This would provide good food for them for two or three days. Together, the day's small victories produced a marked change in Ursuleth's demeanor. The young dwarf had been shy and quiet before, but now she seemed ready to let down her guard. She said more that afternoon than she had in the previous six days altogether. In fact, the question seemed without end. Is it true, she asked Gyrios, that humans allow animals inside their homes? What's that, my dear? Is it true that they allow them to sleep on their pallets? Humans sleep on beds, not pallets, corrected Harl. Yeah, but is it true? For some animals, yes, we do allow that, replied Gyrios. I just can't imagine it. A dozen more questions about humans followed. Do humans really only bear children in the first half of their life? Oh, uh, usually, answered Gyrios. Is it true that most humans die of old age before they even reach 75 years old? Yes, I think that would be the case. By the stones, how do humans even ever get anything done in such a short amount of time? How do you even learn to paint or make music or study history in just a handful of years? That's probably enough questions for now, my dear, said Harl. But even a Kubrick lives longer than that, she protested. All right, Ursula, that will do. Humans must be very quick of study. I cannot see any other possibility. Harl's efforts to dissuade her continued to fall short throughout the afternoon. Now that her curiosity was piqued, Ursuleth unleashed a torrent of questions that continued unabated until evening, when the party finally selected a small grove of pines and took shelter under them for the night. It's good to see our player characters getting a respite from the terrors of Merith. They could each use it, not least Ursuleth, who's not yet fully grown and has lived a sheltered life until now. But at this time, let's pull back from them and eavesdrop on their conversations no longer. The party still has a lot of distance to cover, well over a hundred miles, and they could use their rest. The second leg of the journey to the Arlegwar will take them alongside the Kazmirioth, the Iron River mountain range, through the foothills. If I look at my map, it appears that this terrain continues unbroken for another six days worth of travel before a new geographic feature appears. I'd better pick up some dice and get rolling. Okay, I have a d20 for weather and stumble upon rolls, and a d6 for wandering encounters. A six will indicate that there is one. The party discovered the river and restocked their supplies of food and water on day 32, so these next rolls will be for day 33, 15, a two, and a five. It looks like day 33 has some very nice early summer weather, but nothing special occurs. Day 34, 17, 13, 5. The good weather becomes truly comfortable. The party still has food and water. Spirits are high. Nothing else happens. Day 35, a 10, 16, a 3. The party reaches the midpoint of their greater journey, but this accomplishment is marked with nothing more noteworthy than a few more clouds in the sky and the all-too-familiar anxiety over having run out of food and drink. I need to pause here and consider. What would the characters decide at this point? They can press on in hopes of discovering food and water by luck, slow their progress by one-third and try foraging, or else stop completely, guaranteeing their chance to sustain themselves and providing a small chance to find something extra. 
This last option seems to me the worst for the party, at least right now. What makes sense? Hmm. I think they'll slow their progress and try their luck at foraging. The rule here is, a day spent foraging will slow the party by 8 hours and provide a 1 in 3 chance of success. Let's make some rolls for day 36, making the foraging roll last. Weather. 9. Stumble upon. I've got a 4. Wandering encounter. 2. Well, nothing special so far. The foraging roll will be a success on a 1 or 2 using a d6. A 1. Looks like they found a patch of yellowfoot mushrooms, something Eridine once again recognizes as edible. Day 37. The rolls. 3. 11. 1. The rains are back. They won't be able to fill their skins this time, but I'll say that they can at least get enough water for the day. Given this boon, they will not slow down to forage, and will soldier through a day without food. Day 38. The rolls are... A 12. A 7. And a 3. The weather has improved greatly, but the food situation is getting desperate, and the need to forage is back. On a D6. A 6. They slow their pace but find nothing and succeed only in wasting 8 hours. This would have been the last day of travel in the middle leg of the journey to the Arleguar, but since the party has slowed down to forage a total of three times now, including the time when they entered the foothills, they will require one more travel day. Here come the rules for day 39's weather, stumble upon, and wandering encounters. A 7, an 11, a 3. It's unseasonably cold and windy on this final day of the second leg, but other than the ever-growing problems of hunger and thirst, there's nothing special about the day. The party has now gone two days without food and one without water. In my imagination, this week of travel goes by like a movie montage, with the party constantly marching through the foothills as the weather shifts and changes in the background through a series of dissolves. Sometimes the companions talk or help each other along, Mostly, they walk in silence, with their hoods up, and their backs stooped. Now and then we see them falling asleep under the stars, where they undoubtedly dream of food. In the final frame, the camera zooms in on Gyrios. It is sunset on day 39, and he's praying with a fervor we do not usually see in him. His clothes are now travel-worn and filthy, though the silver shield given him by the dwarves still looks brand new. He presses his holy symbol, a gold coin blessed by Mazagar, to his forehead as he recites his devotions. There are dark circles under his eyes, and his cheeks are hollow. Eleven days ago, day 28. His eyes were bright, but his cheeks were sallow. Wispy strands of long black hair fell in front of his face as he worked, and he brushed them away with his free hand. His right hand wielded the implement. It was a double-headed tool with the handle of polished mahogany. One end was tipped with a long, thin blade, like those used to prepare a fish. The other end featured a dirty iron hook. Sav Merimon, priest of Enthkadra, the decayer, considered his work. He had laid the priestess over her own altar and was now moving the knife end of the implement over the front of her tunic. There had been no need to bind her. His dark miracle of holding had made it unnecessary. The unholy spell kept her body supple while taking away her ability to move. The sister was fully aware, fully conscious. She could think clearly. She could feel everything. It was important for the ritual that she could. 
The material parted under the blade effortlessly, and before long, the porcelain skin of the sister's bare chest lay exposed to him from her chin to her navel. Ileona Aleron, leader of the Sisters of Hope, continued to breathe. Her heart beat rapidly in her chest, like a small bird in a cage, and she knew her life was about to end. Do not fear pain, sister, soothed Marimon. Pain is of this world, and this world is but an illusion. He smiled and pulled away the rest of the fabric, fully exposing her. He lifted and returned the implement to the hollow of her throat, where he let the knife tip touch the skin. He drew it down slowly, first in a straight line, and then in a deliberate shape, as he drew the unholy symbol of his deity. The blade traced across the sister's skin, and the finest line of blood chased the tip. Marimon's hand was extremely delicate. His touch was as light as a moth's wing. He continued, pausing as an artist might, as he worked. The master sent me to you, you know, so that I might receive his message. You will be the book from which I read his instructions. It is a kind of honor for you, sister. Perhaps that will be of some comfort to you in your last moments. Tears had formed at the outer corners of Sister Aleron's eyes. Her head was draped backward, and so, when the tears came, they ran back and over her temples. Her eyes did not blink. You of all people, sister, said the dark priest. He wiped another loose strand of hair out of his face absently with his left hand, and continued working with his right. You of all people should know, wisdom and knowledge do not come for free. He paused for a moment, while he worked on a part of his bleeding design that required full concentration. His tongue protruded slightly from between his thin lips as he completed this most difficult part of the symbol. He exhaled. Finished. There is a price. Suddenly, he dug in the implement, gnashing his teeth with the effort of piercing the abdominal wall. Another effort as he dragged the blade across horizontally. There is a price, he repeated, pulling the blade from the dying priestess's belly. The blade was covered in blood so dark that it was almost black. And now, to read the words of my lord. He turned the implement around. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review or rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps the show reach a wider audience. I'd like to read out an Apple Podcast review at the end of each episode. Today's is from Cozy Powell. Cozy Powell writes, Such a dark but brilliant take on a solo adventure that has me looking for the next episode whenever I open my podcasts up. I want to tell my own story by being inspired by adventure. Clever use of mechanics and fantastic audio production. A fantastic listen. This one left me kind of speechless. Thank you for everything you said, Cozy Powell. If something I do inspires you even a little bit, well, that is absolutely energizing to me. Gratitude is also due to Kirsty Wilson, who plays Ursula the Stonecarver, and newcomer Russ of YumDM.com, giving voice to the sinister and mysterious Sav Marimon. Welcome to the show, Russ. If you use social media, find me on Twitter at Manticore Tale or on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. You can also email me at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also maintain a blog, taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, maps, art, character sheets, random musings, and other errata. The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore. 
the story where chaos rolls. Welcome to a world of myth and legend, inspired by the mythos of the Silk Roads. A place of wonder and mystery, where the tales of heroes aren't being sung, they're being made. Welcome to Erion Well. You can experience the world in whichever way suits you. If you prefer self-contained short-form podcasts with a rotating cast, check out our Earthsembers podcast. If you'd like a full campaign, then tune in to Blood and Song, now available as a micro-podcast. Join us at www.earthsembers.com for more details on both. And may the Great Mother guide you in all that you do. Oh, are you still here? Well, I'm glad that you stuck around. There's someone here who would like to speak with you. He's come all the way back from the Grey Halls just to deliver this message of contrition and unburden his soul before he enters those halls for good. Come on over here, Anatar. I think folks are ready to hear what you have to say now. I'm sorry for killing Kagan. I was just doing what my Lord Barak told me to do. There now. You look like you feel a bit better. You seem to have... A little more color, anyway. Farewell, Anatar. May you find peace somewhere in those endless halls. 